0: Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live and work in the middle of a growing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my tail off, all so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently. So that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of around 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a little bit left over to cover my habits. I mean, hobbies. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this. A 36 year old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country. These are the stories of what life is like. Some good, some bad, but all entertaining. If you get a chance, check out our website. It's NikaSaleAndSurf at gmail.com or my blog at brandontheharper.blogspot.com That's brandontheharper.blogspot.com Also, if you still use the email, you can send us an email to Surf at gmail.com That's N-I-C-A Surf at gmail.com So that's it for the boring stuff. Sit back, relax and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. <laughs> The Galloper has sold, I repeat, the Galloper has sold And I don't mean sold like, yeah we're going to meet up and the guy's going to give me the money and we're going to trade Like it is done, he has the car, he has the keys and I have the cash We finally settled on a price that made me happy enough to see it drive away and you know how most times when you sell a vehicle and you're pulling off the lot with your new vehicle or you're seeing it drive down your street and you just kind of like, you look at it and you're kind of sad and you're like, man, I had some good memories in that car and I remember when that car was new and I loved it and it was great. Well, that did not happen with the Galloper. In fact, I wanted to like pick up some big rocks and throw it at the Galloper as it drove away. I was so glad to see that thing leave me. I've never had like a cursed car before, but that that was probably it. I've learned my lesson. I will never buy another cheap vehicle in Nicaragua again. I probably won't ever buy another cheap vehicle hopefully as long as I live. And if I do buy it, I will never sell it. Like once I buy it, it's going to go with me to the grave or it's going to die in a junkyard somewhere or it'll go left in the woods for trees to grow through it, but I'm not ever going to sell a cheap vehicle again. In this particular case, the guy who bought the Galloper was an American guy who his mom had just built a house down here or bought a house or something, and he kind of comes and goes, and she's going to come and go. So they wanted a vehicle to buy that they could share and and leave you know at the house and use it whenever they're home. But the problem with that is that He's a fresh gringo, so he doesn't have any experience on how we you know what it takes to, to buy a vehicle and the paperwork that you do and the kind of things that you'd have to have done and don't have to have done. There's certain things that like don't matter, and there's certain things that do matter. Well, everyone, they're justified in their assumption that they're going to get screwed over because I'm sure it happens all the time. But in this guy's case, it took him a week and a half from the time that he looked at the vehicle the first time to the time that he handed over the cash. He had to take the vehicle to a mechanic, and he had to get it inspected. And then he had the vehicle, you know, that day he took it to the mechanic. He also took all the paperwork that I had to an attorney to make sure that the title and everything could be transferred over to his name. Then the day that we go to exchange the money for the vehicle, he starts looking at the paperwork again, and he starts freaking out. And he thinks that he's going to get screwed over, and he's not going to be able to register the vehicle. Well, in my case, I never even registered the vehicle. It's not... It's kind of like when you buy a trailer in the States. A lot of times you don't even register it. You know, you kind of let the tags expire and then you just use it and hope you don't get a ticket. Well, that's kind of what I did with the car. But I mean, this guy did his due diligence. At one point I told him, I said, man, I'm not trying to be rude, but if we can't get this sorted out, like by the end of today, we're we're done. Like I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going to take the car to Managua. I'm going to trade it in. If they give me a thousand dollars for it, then that's what we're doing because I was so sick of messing with people. I think think probably 10 people contacted me about wanting to look at the car, nine of which no-showed or wouldn't return my call, and then this guy being the 10th who actually looked at it and bought it. So in my case, I have a 100% conversion ratio. If you look at the car, you're going to buy it. Nine people leading up to him, and it was just it was misery. And every day I got in that thing, and I was just dreading starting it. And I had to put water in it; it would rattle your teeth out, and tires would blow out left and right. And it just it was one thing after another. So, oh happy day, the car is gone. I'm headed to Managua tomorrow. I'm not coming back without a vehicle. Think what I'm going to do is have a local guy here that has like a taxi service drive me to Managua. And and I told him I said, "Call all your buddies because these guys that have the car type businesses, they know." where to buy cars and who to talk to. I said, call all your friends in Managua and your connections and find me a truck. Here's exactly what I'm looking for. And so I'm hoping that he called around a little bit and got some people lined up for us to go look at some vehicles. I've also found one in Leon that I like, which is like an hour and a half from Managua. So I called the guy yesterday. He said it was available. He's supposed to go meet me in Managua tomorrow. And I'm pretty sure, well... As long as the interior isn't ragged out, I'm pretty sure it's the truck I'm going to buy because everything else looked fine and I'm not going to shop around for weeks and weeks and weeks. I'm just going to buy one. If it checks out with a mechanic, we're done. That's it. So stay tuned for the outcome of the truck hunt fiasco. It will start tomorrow and hopefully it'll be over by Wednesday morning. I briefly mentioned about bringing down a bunch of stuff for the boat and parts and whatnot. So one of the projects that we did on the boat was put a new stereo system in it. And... Down here, they're not as familiar with like, aftermarket stereos as we are. So the day that the guy came to put in the stereo, he came from Rebus, which is a town about 45 minutes away. And I originally wanted him to come assess the whole job to see what he needed. And then come back another day and just do the whole thing, start to finish. Well, he informs, he, I'm communicating with him through Byron, one of the guys that works on the boat. And so Byron tells me, hey, the guy's coming. He's going to be here at 8.30 um, you should probably bring all the stereo equipment and meet them. And then we can go to the boat and show him how we want to install everything. So I said, okay. So I met Byron at 8:30 in the morning, right? We're, we're supposed to meet and we sit around and we talk and nine o'clock rolls around. Byron calls him. We said, oh man, he's still in Rebus gathering parts. I'm like, okay. So I'll meet another what, 45 minutes. He goes, yeah, yeah. I hope you're in 30, 45 minutes. So I run, grab a breakfast sandwich. Byron runs somewhere. We meet back. And this time it's like 9.45. And so Byron calls him. It's like, hey, man, where you at? Oh, I'm in Revis. I'm still driving around gathering up parts. Okay? So the guy finally shows up at like 11 o'clock, which I'm learning to deal with it. It's still, it's still kind of tough to accept it, but I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm kind of expecting it, and I don't, my blood pressure doesn't shoot up when it happens. So in the meantime, that, you know, Byron talks to this guy and tries to explain to him what we're doing, and then I'm like, you know, we, we, I'm starting naming off things that we need. We need a couple switches. We need some piping that conceals bare wires. And so a couple other things that we need that aren't easily accessible here. And so I knew this was going to happen. That's why I wanted to have him out there, look at it, and then round up our supplies and then do it. But he insisted on doing it all the same day. And so we get out to the boat. I kind of show him how we want everything hooked up. And Byron and I debate for an hour on where to put the speakers. We got it all sorted out. And the guy wanted to hook these tiny little wires he wanted to use to hook up this big, gigantic amplifier, and it needs big, thick, heavy-gauge wires. So he held up this little tiny wire, and I was like, no, it's not going to work. So he's like, okay. So he had an extension cord, and he hacked up his extension cord to get the wires out of it. I said, that's fine if you want to do that. But then he tried to charge me for the extension cord, and I was like, no, 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 no. You are not getting paid for that extension cord because you chose to cut it up. And so anyway, it wasn't that big of a deal, but we got the whole thing done. The stereo works well. It's not exactly how we wanted it, but it works good. We also wired up some lights um, in the, inside the boat. But, um, you know, when they first got out there and got started, it was this guy. I don't know. He's probably like mid-40s maybe, and he had like a 14-year-old son who was his helper. And I was like, you know, it took us two hours to figure out how we're going to do everything and then he starts getting started, and it's probably about 1 o'clock when he gets, really gets going. And so then I was like, well, there's no way they're going to finish this today, much less are they going to be able to install the lights. But I'll tell you what, they proved me wrong. They had the whole stereo installed, and we were jamming music in like an hour and a half. And then the next hour and a half, two hours, they installed all the lights, even put the switches in like they're supposed to. Everything worked perfect. It was one of the best... Nicaragua projects that I've ever been a part of. So I've now got a boat electrical guy that will come and do a good job and he'll show up when he says he's going to show up. He even showed up on Saturday when we had originally left the boat after the radio installation. We told him he needs to come back and we're going to install some other new gauges and components. We're like, yeah, it'll probably be Saturday. Well, and it was, was like a week earlier. And he just shows up on Saturday morning, you know, because we told him it would probably be Saturday. And we felt bad because we had a tour, so obviously he couldn't work on the boat, so we had to turn around and send him home. And we ended up paying him the rest of his money. So it, the total bill for installing the stereo, the lights, and all new instrument clusters, which we hadn't paid him for that, or we've paid him for that, but he hadn't done the work yet. So basically two days' worth of work, traveling from 45 minutes away, um including wires um, for the stereo and and switches was one hundred and sixty bucks. Now that's two people, him and his fifteen year old son who's his helper. But just to give you an idea about how cheap the the labor can be, that was you know basically two days worth of work, two people forty five minutes away, one hundred and sixty bucks. I didn't even bat an eye when he quoted a price. I just said, "Get after it And speaking of cheap prices, I just got back from a breakfast at the market. Where the market's just like the little, it's like one square block in town. Maybe not even that much, maybe half a block. And they have the fresh produce and fresh meat and comadores is what they call them, like a little, like an eatery is basically what it translates to. Not, not quite a restaurant, but not just walk up and order your food and walk away. But, and, and there's four or five of them inside the market. And they all have the exact same menu, and they're all exact same price. But some of them have earned a reputation for being better than others. So I've, I always eat at the one that's popular. I always eat at the one where there's the most people. And that's, it's the same one every time. And so I don't know, or I suspect that everyone else may do the same thing. So as you walk in the market, the, the main entrance, you know, there's four of them in a row. It's the first one that you come to that everyone always eats at. And I've never been brave enough to try the other ones, but they might be better. But I just, I I think in my mind, like, well, there's a reason why everyone's going to this one. So I just, I've always gone there. But what it is, what I always get is uh, huevos rancheros is what they call it, which is the ranchero sauce isn't like a ranchero sauce you'd think of from Mexico. It's basically like ketchup. I think they take ketchup and then they add some sugar and then they add some more sugar and maybe a little bit more sugar and they throw some onions in there. And there's your ranchero sauce. And I always ask for it on the side, and they never put it on the side. But I always make sure to point it out to them. Whenever they bring it out, you know, I said, oh, I ordered the sauce on the side. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they just it down and walk away. <laughs> so I don't think that they care. It's so cheap, though, that I had two eggs, gallo pinto, which is rice and beans. that are mixed together, a little chunk of cheese, and a tortilla, and a coffee. My bill was $4, including a tip, and the kid's face lit up when he got the $0.75 cent tip. So, yeah, all the little Commodores, they have, like, the ladies that are cooking in the back, and then all their kids are the ones who are waiting on the tables. So it's pretty funny. Like kids are running around, and they, the kids learn at a young age to try to recruit people to come sit at their little tables so that they get the business and um, you can tell, like they they all come running up and they see you, and you pull up a chair that's not there, man. They just deflate. They're just like, oh, turn around, and walk away, wait for the next person to come through. But the prices have doubled at the Comedor's in the last three or four years. I remember when I first started going there, it was like thirty cords, thirty Cordobas, which right now is a little over a, a dollar. Um, and today they're sixty, which is. I don't know, there's like 25 per dollar, so a little over 2 bucks. Uh Still well worth it, not complaining, but by the time that you order coffee and you give a tip, it comes out to about $4. You can't beat it, and you can't really specify how you want your eggs. You'll get them fried or you'll get them scrambled, but their idea of scrambled eggs is to take the egg and crack it and throw it on the um, the griddle and then let the yolk cook all the way through, and then chop it all up. That's that's their definition of scrambled eggs. So I always get mine fried. And I always ask them for uh, suave, which is like uh, runny, like a little runny. But they don't ever do it. They just cook it, and cook it, and cook it, and cook it, and cook it, until the yolk is the consistency of a hard-boiled egg. And then they put the sugar ketchup on top, and then they serve it. I, I complain, but it's $4, so it's... It's still worth it. Maybe one day I'm going to get back in there and try to, try to cook my eggs with them and show them exactly how to cook them. But, or maybe I'll just try some of the other restaurants. They're commodores, Maybe they're better. And i tell you what. It's cool to have mango trees. It really is cool. And you get a lot of mangoes, and they're really good, and you can eat as much as you want. And you can make smoothies, and you can do all kinds of stuff with them. You can make jam, but I never did that, and I probably won't. But I'll tell you what's not cool about mango trees is that at any given time, there's like a thousand mangoes on the ground. Faster than Ronnie can pick them up, those things are falling down. And they don't stay good forever. They rot, and they start smelling, and they smell like rotten mangoes. So right now when you walk outside, it's kind of a sweet, sour, mango smell. <laughs> it's not strong, and it's not like pugnant, and it won't keep you from leaving your doors open. But you can definitely smell it when you walk out there. And there's like, there's certain areas where he does clean up the mangoes. He does a really good job, like right by the front door on the sidewalk, he keeps all those, you know, cleaned up and doesn't let them pile up. But there's other areas kind of upwind of the house where he just lets them go. Like those things are just piled up underneath the tree. And I don't know if he's just waiting till they all fall and then he can throw them all away. I suspect no. I suspect they're just going to rot and turn into fertilizer. But... Hopefully the smell will go away soon, and then like the there's a bunch of half-eaten mangoes on the ground from the monkeys because they'll pull the mango off, take like four bites, and then throw it on the ground. I don't know why they do it, but they do. And so the bees get on those mangoes and they cover them, and I don't know if they're like pulling the, the nectar out of them or I don't know I'm not exactly sure how how bees work, but I know they like sweet stuff. So they get on those mangoes and they you know they just it's big of a hole that's in the mango will be entirely covered. My bees so it's been pretty cool to see that and bentley and bronco have now learned don't mess with mangoes with bees on them because they get popped and they, it's happened a couple of times uh, and bentley and bronco have also now discovered that they really they like the monkeys they like the monkeys in the trees and like to watch them but they have now learned that below monkeys is monkey poop and monkey poop must taste really really good to dogs so good that they try to scarf it down as fast as they can and like, I think dogs know inherently that they're not supposed to eat poop, but it's so good to them that they cannot resist it. And the reason that I think that is because I'll look up and I'll see Bronco and he'll see me and he just starts eating the poop as fast as he possibly can while he's looking at me and he he can time it. So if I start running over there towards him, like he'll eat, start eating faster and faster and faster. And then like the split second before I get to him, he stops eating and runs away. And so I don't know, there's part of me that just wants to let them eat it. Like if it's that good, if they're willing to to risk a, a whooping to eat that stuff, like it's probably just got like mango stuff in it. So I don't know. It's pretty gross. I don't let them lick me if they've been outside recently because they go on monkey poop hunts. I've recently decided that I'm going to start doing one dog story on the podcast, like from. From years past, or from the, the monkey poop story, I'm not counting that. I'm gonna tell another story every time I do one because I was thinking about how long I've had dogs and all the fun stuff I've done and how many stories I've got of just, just funny, like dog stories. Everyone likes to hear a good dog story. So I'm gonna start doing one on every show. The first one um, was in college, and I had Chevy, and Steven had gotten Stag, who my college roommate's named Steven, one of my best friends. And so he had stag. And I taught Chevy it was always kinda of like a little competition between who could who could teach their dog, dog the most stuff. And so I, I think the dogs were probably around four months old, maybe five months old. Uh maybe maybe a little older, but definitely less than a year. And I taught Chevy how to go find my hat. So I had I would take my like baseball hat and I would show it to him and I'd say, Go find my hat, you know, to teach him and then eventually it got to the point where my hat could be anywhere in the house and he would just go searching around the house until he found my hat and he'd bring it to me. So one day I'd get a brand new polo baseball hat and we had a, we had a doggy door that went out, outside of the backyard. And so I was all proud, you know, I was showing Steven, like I taught Chevy to go get my hat and I could be sitting on the couch and my hat could be in my room and he'd run in my room, check the dresser, get my hat and bring it back to me. And boy, I thought it was the cool, coolest thing ever. So one day we get home from class I look out in the backyard. I was like, what is that out in the backyard? And I look out there, and it's just a, what's left of a brand new white polo baseball hat. And Steven just started laughing. And he's like, hey, good trick there, buddy. <laughs> so I think I, I think I kept the trick up for a long time. I just made sure that the hat, the hat wasn't accessible if I wasn't home because he wouldn't do it if I were home. So that's, uh, that's the, one of the funny one of the funny dog stories, there's a lot more to come. I've got them all written down, and I'm going to tell, tell one a week. So that's that one. Uh, Steven, if you hear this, you'll remember that one for sure. You know, you always hear me talk about Ronnie, the uh, the caretaker around the house where I'm living. And he's got more initiative than almost probably any Nicaraguan that I've ever met. And not to say that in a negative way, but most of them just don't have don't have initiative. They don't really look for things to do or they're just, they kind of just wait to be told. And, and that's just how they are. Like I, I think I've talked about it in the past, but that's their, it's their culture. So it's something you got to learn to live with because we're not used to that. We're used to like finding problems, coming up with a solution and imp- implementing the solution. Ronnie's a little bit different. Zach and I, we had an inflatable dinghy from the boat that we've always had problems with. It's never been able to hold air and so we've never really used it. and It's always just kind of been a source of problems for us to drag it around everywhere. But since I've sold the Galloper, I rented a truck to last me until I go buy a new one. And so Zach and I decided that we were going to take the dinghy to a tire repairman because they have these volcanizadores, Vulcan, I think is what they're called. They're just tire repairmen scattered all over town. And they'll patch your tire and put it back on. it's flat so we're like man these guys are good at patching maybe they can patch the boat so we throw the boat in the truck it's just a small little inflatable dinghy with a metal bottom drive around with a couple tire patchmen nobody wanted to fool with it so i just like well i'll just take it back to my house so i brought it to my house unloaded it kind of left it sitting next to the truck and it was flat obviously flat the next morning i walk outside and it was saturday Ronnie and he's got a buddy named Ismail, and Ismail always comes over and hangs out with Ronnie on Saturday. I think that's his day off, and he lives close to here, so he's always over here on Saturday. They're hanging out, and they had that boat up in the shade. They're scrubbing it, washing it. They got there's a bunch of leaves and crap and dirt in it. They got all that stuff out, and then Ismail, like on his day off, rode his motorcycle back to his house, got an air pump, like an air mattress pump, brings it back, and they figure out how to try to start putting air in that thing it was awesome, because I was like, man, this, maybe they can fix it, you know? So the three of us are out there. We're kind of looking at it, scratching our heads. And, you know, we figured it out. We got the air in it. And they were like, well, now we need to put a water hose on it. So I was like, no, no, no. We need to put it in the pool. So, <laughs> so they were super excited about that idea. So we took the boat down to the pool. We put it in the water. And we found a couple of the leaks. And um, so... I, I told, he was like, do you want the boat? And I said, like, well, do you think you can fix it? And he's like, yeah, I think I can fix it. So the deal that I made with him was I'll pay for the materials to fix it. He can fix the boat. And he, he really wanted to use the boats for fishing because he wanted to go out there and catch fish for food. And I honestly think that he saw it as a way to provide food for his family without having to pay for it. Like in his mind, he th- sees fish, you know, cost 4 to 6 $7 a pound. And he can go out there and catch as much as he wants for free. And so I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't deny him use of the boat based on that. So the deal that Ronnie and I struck was he patches the boat up, or he takes it to his house, patch it up. If he gets it working, he can use as much as he wants as long as I'm not using it. So I think that's, that's a good deal. I honestly don't think they'll be able to do it. I don't think it'll hold air. It's too sun-rotted and dried up and nasty. But... I hope for his sake that he does and he can just catch limitless fish and feed them to his family. you got to remember that he's making like 350 bucks a month. His rent, he told me his rent is $40 a month, um, has no electricity, no running water, uh, goes outside to go to the restroom in a latrine. So, man, anything I can do to help out that guy, I, I'm going to do it because he works hard, he has initiative, and he's he's not scared to work. So... I'll update everyone on the status of the lanchita, the little boat. Rainy season is upon us. It's now um, June 14th, and it's raining almost every night. Um, sometimes it'll start around 8.30, 9 o'clock. Sometimes it doesn't start till 1 or 2 a.m., but almost every night for the last two weeks it's rained. And it is crazy how fast things have turned green. Like there's areas that were just crispy and brown and literally overnight, you drove past them, they're brown. And the next day, they're like bright green. So it's pretty cool to see everything coming back. There's a bunch of like, you know, I've talked about it a little bit regarding the moths, but now it's like these flying ant things. And they don't sting you, but they just look, they look bodies of ants with these wings and they're all over the place. And I'm assuming that they'll be here for like two weeks and then something else will be. There's always like a little plague um, of things during the rainy season from what I gather. But right now it's the flying ants, and I'm glad they don't sting. I'd much rather deal with the flying ants than the, than the moth plague because it was nasty. The flying ants don't stink. They don't come in the house. They don't get on the ceiling. They just kind of buzz around you when you're sitting outside. And as long as a breeze is blowing, they don't mess with you too much. But they're everywhere outside the house. So that's the current, uh, that's the current plague. All right, I think that's going to wrap up today's show. I know it was kind of short, but not a lot went on in the last week or so. So that's it. I guarantee you I'm going to come back from Managua with plenty of good stories. So I will get those out as soon as I get back and get sorted. So the next time you hear from me, I'm going to have a new vehicle. I'm not coming back from Managua until I have one. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, NikaSaleAndSurf.com. Send us an email. Sale and surf at gmail.com Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Williams and Zinger killed poor Hattie Carroll With the cane that he twirled Round his diamond ring finger At a Baltimore hotel Society gathering And the cops were brought in And his weapon took from him As they rode him in custody Down to the station And booked Williams and Zinger For first degree murder Ah, but you Who philosophize disgrace And criticize all fears Take the wreck away from your face Now ain't the time For your tears. Williams and Zinger, who at twenty-four years owned a tobacco farm for six hundred.